Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Greetings of peace, my brothers and sisters. This is Baraka Blue, and you are tuned into Path and Present Podcast. I just want to thank you all for listening. Um, I'm really moved every time somebody sends me a message or I go do an event and someone comes up to me and say, I love your podcast, or I love this specific guest, or I love this topic, or I wish you would talk about this, or maybe you should have so-and-so on. Um, It means a lot to me because, you know, this podcast is for me a labor of love. It's something that I do kind of on the side in addition to my music and my poetry and my teaching endeavors. So, you know, it's something that I can sometimes put on the back burner and uh, put on the side because it's not really, um, you know, it's it's just something I, I do out of love, you know. But and sometimes when I'm doing it, I'm like, man, I got to focus on other projects, which is what I've been doing recently. I've been focusing on, um, you know, a series of workshops, which I'll talk about. But whenever somebody says, I love it, or I connected with it, or it meant a lot to me, um, or, you know, I'll get things like this girl in London mentioned to me, like a specific podcast changed her life, and she focused on an idea that we talked about in the podcast for her master's thesis. Like she decided to research into something. So that means a lot to me because I really believe in the power of this medium. I've been really moved by um, podcasts. And just the, the the freedom of it and that it can be long form and that nobody controls it and nobody can, you know, uh, we don't have any sponsors that we're beholden to. Or if we say something wrong, that they'll, they'll cut their sponsorship or take us off the air. It's 100% free. And I try to be really real and raw in this because the podcasts that, that speak to me are ones where the hosts and the people talking are really honest and, and there's no pretense. So, you know, that said, if, if, if you dig it, if you enjoy it, please let us know. Um, all your, you know, you can write me at Baraka Blue on Twitter and, uh, you know, suggest anything. If there's someone you'd like uh, to have on, uh, if you're interested in a specific topic, if you liked something that we said in the podcast or didn't like or object to something, um, I'd love to hear all that. Uh, it, it, it means a lot to me to, to know that people are engaging with it and people are listening and reflecting on it. So it's always good to hear that feedback. Um, if you want to support financially, there's the Patreon, um, and you can find the link in the SoundCloud or the iTunes. Um, let's see. So this podcast is with Omid Safi, who is a professor of Islamic studies and who focuses on Sufism and Sufi thought. His new book is called Radical Love, and we're here in this podcast talking about his new book, which I've had the blessing of reading over for the last few weeks, and he sent me a copy, and um, it's great. It's really great. It's a collection of, uh, of poems from different Sufi poets, and you know you have some ones that are well-known, like Rumi, but you also have many poets who are lesser-known from that same tradition. And uh, he also has some introductory remarks, kind of contextualizing it and discussing it. And I really liked uh, this podcast just to get to talk to him about that. So I hope you like it as well. Um, Before I give you the podcast, there was a few uh, updates or announcements that I had. I want to make sure people are aware of. Uh, The first one is that I've been doing some uh, online workshops, writing workshops, we call it Opening the Eye of the Heart, and it is a four-week 
contemplative writing workshop. Um, what that means is that it's really not just about creativity, but it's about self-discovery. And we study about Sufi poetry. We read various uh, Sufi poems and we read poets of mystics of other traditions as well, East and West. Uh, and then we have some secondary reading about the craft of poetry, but also about the symbolism of Sufi poetry. And um, we also have lessons and, I, you know, I have some videos and commentaries and exercises and, and all type of things. Um, but really for me also, what's amazing about it is we have a closed Facebook group that serves as our kind of virtual classroom and people can comment and interact and, you know, connect with a group of people who are creative people on the spiritual path. And it's been really transformative for me just to be a part of such an eclectic beautiful group of people from all over the world. So if that type of thing sounds interesting to you, I highly encourage you to come join us. Um, we're currently doing the summer course, um, but the fall course is open. September uh, 2nd, it begins. And the website is roomycenter.bigcartel.com. That's roomycenter.bigcartel.com. And there you can uh, learn more about it, can read testimonials of uh, previous participants, and um, you, can also, uh, you can also register if you are interested. And uh, yeah, it's been really amazing, and you know, it's really encouraged me to develop a few other courses, so a few other courses are in the works. Um, inshallah, we'll have one for Rabbi Al-Awwal about the Prophet, sallallahu to offer that. And then um, lastly, uh, I have some tour dates. I will be going to Southeast Asia, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore this summer in uh, late July and early August. So um, I'm really excited about this because uh, it's organized by an organization called Embara, who is a great organization of people. Uh, mostly in Malaysia, some of them are in Singapore, and I've had the ability and the honor to do some programs with them in the past, but this time they're, they're arranging a much larger tour. And for this tour, the, the kind of uh, spirit, the, 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 the uh, opening of this tour is a week in Java. Java is the, you know, the largest island in Indonesia, and it is the home of the Wali Sango. So the Wali Sango means the, the nine saints, the nine awliya who brought the deen of La ilaha illallah to this region, the, the sages who brought the deen here. And so we're going to be studying this historically, looking at the, the places they went and, and how they did it and you know, really how they articulated the deen to this, this different context. And we'll be visiting their, their shrines, etc. And the blessing of it for me, among many blessings, is that it will be led by Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah and Sheikh Mohammed Al Jilani. And these are two of my teachers, two of my elders, who I've benefited immensely from. Uh, many of you will know Sheikh Mohammed Al Jilani is a great Qadri uh, Sufi Sheikh from West Africa, from the Gambia, who I've had the blessing of visiting in the Gambia a number of times uh, for their annual conference, their Qadri conference. And Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah is one of the prominent uh, Muslim thinkers, intellectuals 
in the West and also a Sufi Sheikh himself. So just to spend time in their presence is really what it's about. But, um, you know, uh, it's going to be an amazing, amazing tour. Uh, if you're interested in it, there is a website. Let me see. Okay, here it is. It's warsito.embara.org. Uh, W-A-R-S-I-T-O dot Embara, E-M-B-A-R-A uh, dot org. Warsito.embara.org. So, Embara uh, is, a, is a cool organization, and they're spearheading this and organizing it, and I'm really honored to take part. Um, and then if you go to my Facebook, um, in the coming weeks, I'll be posting the events and the flyers for Malaysia and Singapore. Um, those haven't been released yet, but, uh, you have now the website for the first week in Indonesia. So check that out. All right. Um, yes, without further ado, I want to give you this episode of Path and Present Podcast, and here is my conversation with Omid Safi. So I guess the, the, the first thing I would say is congratulations and thank you for this book. Um, it's been wonderful to be reading over it, and I hope you don't mind that I've uh, marked it up a bit and folded over corners, but that to me is a sign of a book well loved. And since it is the, a book of radical love, I'm radical. There you go. Book right now. There you go. A lot of you know, a lot of the most radical loves look kind of worn. That's right. And uh, I think I think if it if it looks pristine, then you got to be a little suspicious about that because <laughs> then it's decoration. It's not a book that somebody is kind of. Uh, sat with and and uh, worked through. So I'm I'm always honored, and I you know I love I love both uh, aesthetics. I love the aesthetic of really honoring um, the 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 you know pristine nature of a book. And I've got some books that I keep like that, but I also love, and this too is is a part of our tradition, of course, of the marginalia. Mm. Uh, and you know, so many of the great commentaries of our tradition were things that people were scribbling on the margins of the books and then on the margins of the margins and the margins of the margins of the margins. And so I think both ways have their own adab and their own beauty. Um, so it's all good. It's all good. That's right. So I know a few years ago, uh, you sent me an article that you had written. Uh, I forget the exact title, but it was about this mezhabi ish, the path of, of radical love, of ish. And I, uh, I really enjoyed reading over that. So I know this is a topic that you are not new to, that you've been reading and reflecting and kind of steeping yourself in this, this tradition for many years. So for those that are less familiar, I'd love for you to just briefly introduce what is the, the path of radical love? What is the mezhabi ish? Maybe a little bit about the kind of historical uh, formation and key players, but more importantly, the kind of principles and what, what separates this path from other paths? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, you know, I mean, that term madhab, 
um, in, in Arabic or mazhab in Persian, Turkish, Urdu pronunciation. Uh, I mean, we know that term from people talking about, you know, do you follow this mazhab or that uh, mazhab? Are you a Shafi'i or a Hanbali or a Hanafi or a Jafari and, and so on? Um, and certainly the people that we're talking about here, um, you know, the most famous ones would be people like uh, Rumi, uh, Ahmed Ghazali, Ainul Qadat Hamadani, Attar, um, Hafiz, uh, Abu Sa'id Abul Khair, uh, Kharaqani, and, and, and so on. You know, they all had their own legal madhab that they followed. Um, they didn't all follow the same legal madhab. They had different legal madhabs that they, that they would be following. But um, they also said, oftentimes when people would ask them, of what is really your madhab? Mm. And they said, well, you know, the point of having a path is that the path should take you to Allah. Mm. That's the whole point of having a path. And, uh, and, and so they started to talk about um, love. And of course, in all of these beautiful languages, you know, we've got 15 different words for love. Mm. Um, and, and the word that they kept coming back to was this word, uh, ish. Um, which isn't just um, sweet and gentle love. I mean, this is a fiery kind of love. Um, and so that's, that was one reason that I settled eventually on this term radical love. Because, uh, of course, you know, the term radical, which nowadays it's used in all kinds of ways that are maybe not so, so uh, helpful. <laughs> um, but the term radical means to go back to the root of something. Mm. That's the original meaning of the term radical. Um, so a radical love is, is a kind of love that takes you back to the root, to the heart of who you are. Mm. Um, so, you know, when you got somebody like Rumi who begins uh, the, the Masnavi, with that wonderful line that, you know, this is the book of the rhyme and couplets. This is the Masnavi. And it is the root of the root of the root of the faith, right? You could translate that as this is some radical, radical, radical stuff. Mm, right. Um, and I think sometimes that kind of a translation uh, might convey something more to people today um, than... Than, uh, than another one would. So, you know, the idea that they basically had, um, the reality that they had and they were living was that this radical love is not an emotion. Uh, contrary to kind of how we tend to talk about love, that I have love towards you and uh, I love you and I like you, but I don't know if I'm in love with you and all that kind of nonsense that we waste so many decades of our lives on. For them, ish is not even just a quality of Allah. Ish is actually the very being of Allah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, and they said that ish is the overflowing of Allah that brings us into creation. Uh, it's, it's as if God's love for creation was bubbling over. Uh, it was so ecstatic that, uh, that God has to give birth to the world so that we can come to know God intimately. 
And so in that way, they talk about love not as an emotion, not as a sentiment. Um, as I sometimes tell uh, you know, my students these days, love is not an emoji. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not something you text somebody. Um, and it's not even something that you feel. Um, love is this unleashing of God onto creation. It is this cosmic current that has poured out of God, has brought us here, sustains us here. And if we can just get over our own sense of ego, our own sense of being this finite self cut off from each other, and if we can just merge with this cosmic current, that same love is going to carry us back to Allah. I think that's beautiful. And I think that is, that is so important. And I'm really interested in exploring deeply this idea because love, you know, love is thrown around and love. Yeah. Uh, it's the same word you use for your, your favorite candy bar and your mother, you know? So it's, uh, it can become a trite thing, but in the, in the way that the Sufis are using it, it is, it is the deepest thing. It is the essence of the essence. It is the root of the root. It is the center of our being and it is the, the ultimate reality. And one way that I know Rumi and others in this tradition explore this is through this idea of uh, majazi and haqiqi, right? So metaphorical yeah. love and real, true love. And um, my understanding, I'd love to hear you explore it more, but that this idea that actually love for anything other than God is actually metaphorical love and that all you can really love and what you do love, every beloved is actually behind that is the divine beloved, whether you see it or not. Right, exactly. So, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, this distinction of love as a metaphor and then the real love. Uh, I mean, this is certainly something that has been around since the beginning of Islamic thought um, and, and many Sufis, even before this distinct path of radical love shows up, had talked about this distinction between real love and metaphorical love. And, and that distinction never entirely goes away. Um, you know, you can find it, uh, as you said, in Rumi, where Rumi tells you, like, don't fall in love just with somebody's pretty form, mm -hmm. their surat, uh, because the form is going to change. And if all that you have fallen in love with from somebody is the beautiful face, what are you going to do when the beautiful face starts getting wrinkles on it? Mm -hmm. Right? So that distinction does linger. But, uh, and, and I think this is a really kind of important development that really, uh, it's good to sit with it. Because I'm, um, sometimes I'm a little um, saddened that even among folks who really love the Sufi tradition, that this next point isn't sufficiently um, embraced. So, you know, everybody, of course, has heard of Imam Ghazali, um, and he's called the proof of Islam, Hujjatul Islam, and some people would compare him to Aquinas or St. Augustine as, you know, the greatest of the Muslim theologians. Well, you know, he's got this younger brother uh, named Ahmad, 
uh, Ahmad Ghazali. And Ahmad, in some ways, at least for the people in this radical love tradition, is always said to have been a greater saintly being than his older brother. They always say that Abu Hamid or Muhammad Ghazali was the greater scholar, but the younger brother was on fire. He was the one who, whose heart really had been burnt through this kind of a love. And Ahmad, is, he's the one that really writes the book on radical love. He writes a fantastic book called the Savonet, um, which has been translated into English by a great scholar of Sufism named Nasrullah Purjavadi. And, um, you know, if you love platonic dialogues, uh, you will like the Savane. It is a beautiful, rich, dense, metaphysical reflection on Eshq. And in the first paragraph is where he pushes the conversation beyond what had by that point been a 300-year-old distinction between real love and metaphorical love. And what he says, Ahmad Ghazali says, is, um, you know, if it was up to me, I would have never written a book about love because we know that the reality of love is so much more subtle and so much more luminous than just words on a page. But my friends begged me. And so I agreed. I relented. And I agreed that I would write something for them on one condition that you never ask me and you never bifurcate this love into the love of the creator or the love of humanity mm. because there is one love. And this was a bold idea in the history of, of Sufi thought and practice. This notion that love once you have purged it of all of these illusions and delusions that we occupy ourselves with, and once you've gotten your ego a little bit under control and out of the way, that there is one love, that whether you are loving a mama, a baba, a brother, a sister, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a stranger, a spiritual teacher, a prophet, or a law, that this is all one love. Mm -hmm. And that to learn to really love another human being isn't just a metaphor. And it's not just the alphabet that we got to learn before we can love Allah. It is actually the very same love that has poured out of God. The reason that we can love each other is because Allah has loved us. And if we claim, and th- I mean, this point, we are all struggling with this point even today. If somebody claims to be a religious person, if somebody claims to love God, the very first thing that you got to pay attention to is do they love God's creation? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this notion of a one love Uh, which uh, Ahmad Ghazali is very explicit on. Uh, He says that, you know, the love that there is 
from God to us, between us as humans and humans and Allah, all of this love is of one essence. It is one color. It is one nature. So he actually pushes the conversation much further beyond what had been a very established and respected tradition of the majazi and the haqiqi, the metaphorical and the real love. Uh, and that older distinction never goes away because, you know, as you said so beautifully, Rumi himself uh, cites that in the Masnavi as well. But they add this tradition of, of a one love uh, idea. And, um, and I think that's a really powerful, very distinctive part of the Sufi tradition that develops in the mazhab ishq in the path of radical love. Uh, that's very beautiful. And it reminds me of this uh, Sufi teaching story you hear all the time where there was a young, you know, overzealous disciple who wished to take the path with a certain spiritual master, Sufi, Sufi Sheikh. And he went to the Sheikh and he said, oh, Sheikh, take me as your student. And the Sheikh said, oh, young man, have you ever been in love? Yeah. And the disciple said, no. And he said, go fall in love and then come back and I'll teach you. So it's this idea that if you haven't experienced human love, then how, right. what, what can the spiritual path do for you? That it's actually a bridge and it's the, it, is, it is a way that we taste and we experience and it leads us then to, the, to, to be able to awaken to a deeper divine love. And then, like you say, you realize, in fact, you know, that when you love the beautiful scent of the rose or a beautiful face or a majestic sunset or, or a mountain range, uh, or when you love justice in the world or when you love mercy of a, of, a, of a mother bird to her little baby bird, that in reality, all those things, whether beauty or majesty or justice or mercy, all of those are names of Allah. All of those are traits of God. And so what you are is you're loving God. You're, you're experiencing God and you're loving God through these manifest forms, whether you realize it or not. It, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, I think um, Ahmed Ghazali's uh, main student and disciple and, and commentator, Ayn al-Ghazat, uh, you know, at one point he sort of, uh, you can imagine him talking to one of his own followers and the guy's like, yeah, I just, I don't feel any love in my heart. I can't feel like I'm capable of the love of Allah. And he basically just asked him, like, do you love your mama? Uh, do you love trees? Uh, do you love a river when your feet are dangling in a river? And the, question, the one that I love, and we get so little of this in the Muslim tradition, he says, do you love snow? Do you love it when the first snowfall comes? And do you dance in it like a child? Like, do you love snow? And if you do, then you've tasted love. You know love. Uh, and, and I find that that's such a beautiful and powerful thing for us to remind ourselves because so many of the people that I meet, um, they tell me, uh, oh, you know, I live a loveless existence, mm. that I've been searching for love, but I, but I can't find it. And, and I think especially for folks who live in the West or who have grown up in the West or whose kind of aesthetic and spiritual life has been shaped by 
some of the moors of, of, of the West. It's because we have taken this rainbow of love, which actually extends to even colors that we can't see, and we've collapsed all of it to this one romantic notion of love, which is physical and sexual. And then, you know, we sit there and we complain about the fact that that one person who's supposed to fulfill us isn't showing up. Mm. And instead, I think what the Sufis of the radical love path are doing is they're telling us, you got 7 billion outlets for love. And that's just the human ones. Right. Right? Can you love a kitten? Can you love a puppy? Can you love a tree? Can you love a brook? Can you love snowfall and sunshine on your face? Um, and, you know, one of the great mystics that I've got in, in the book, a woman, um, uh, she, you know, she talks about, um, it's because I love Allah that I have to love his handiwork. Mm. Right. Um, so I think there's, there's also a, a kind of way that that also opens up, uh, um, you know, a possibility. Absolutely. Uh, and, and one of my favorite hadith uh, from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, I'm not sure if it's in the text, but it's one of those ones which I think people misread a lot. Because mm-hmm. It says, uh, this world and everything in it is cursed except for dhikr Allah, remembrance of God, and that which is an aid thereto or that which assists you to remember God. And the interesting thing about that is one way to read that is, oh, this whole world is cursed. All I need to do is pray and fast and, you know, guard myself from the, the, the cursed world. But the, that's an extremely superficial reading because if you just look at it for a split second and reflect on it, you'll see that the common denominator is the subjective self. Because another way to say the exact same thing is nothing in this world is cursed if mm. you remember God by it or through that's it. Right. And so it's you. And so the same two people can see the same rose or the same face or the same movie or the same whatever. And they're having a totally different experience vis-a-vis the actual, the soul and the creator. And it's the exact same outward manifestation, but it's the, it's the, the common denominator is the subject, the self. And so, you know, that is really the challenge, I think, of, of the the path that the prophet is calling us to see everything as a reminder, everything as an ayat, as a sign, everything as, as a, as a, as a, as a divine message. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think uh, when that kind of moment of uh, realization comes, um, you know, it, it, it's almost a sort of Zen like uh, moment of becoming awakened into this kind of consciousness. Um, one of the poems that I still remember when I um, was going through Rumi's Divan, um, the, the love poetry collection of Rumi, and um, you know he's got this beautiful poem that I translated in the book, and I just got goosebumps the first time that I, I read that poem. I liked it so much that I spent some time trying to figure out how to poet, put it in, um, in a decent poetic English. Um, so I may just read a little bit of that sort of for you. So he's talking about when he experiences uh, this sense of love and, 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 and he talks about love as being personified here. He starts talking to love, 
Um, so it begins by him loving a human being. Um, you know, he describes her the way that many of our poets did as a moon-like beauty, mm. moon-like beauty. And of course, anybody who knows the Nasheed tradition, uh, you know, we all know that the prophet is, of course, always compared to um, a moon and a full moon. And so is um, a beloved, a human beloved. So, you know, the moon-like beauty could refer simultaneously um, to your wife, uh, or it could refer to your husband, or it could refer to the prophet. And, um, you know, there's a beautiful fluidity in this kind of tradition. Um, so, you know, he talks about here, I'll just read this. Um, he says, last night I became love-crazed, Majnun. Love saw me and said, so love actually starts talking to him. He says, I've come, don't shout, say nothing. I said, love, I'm afraid of something else, right? And of course, you know, so much of our life, even when we're falling in love, we're afraid of what may happen and what the consequence of this um, love may be. Um, so I just said, you know, I'm afraid, of, um, uh, I'm afraid of something else. Love said, there is nothing else. Say nothing. Let me whisper secrets in your ear, say nothing. And then at this point is when like Rumi's starting to have his Zen-like moment that he's figuring out that this love, it's not quite human. It, there's something more luminous to this experience of love. So he says, what a beauty. Are you an angel or a human? And love said, not an angel, not a human, say nothing, right? So then he just starts completely freaking out. And he's like, okay, so if you're not an angel, and if you're not a human, and let's hope you're not a gen, like, then what, what's left? And the only thing, of course, that's left is Allah, right? Because in love, when you burn away, there's nothing that is left except Allah. So he said, um, going back to the poem, he said, I said, what is this? Say it. Love said, stay like this. Say nothing. Mm. I said, my heart, isn't this God? Isn't this God's quality? Love said, yes, my child. By hush, say nothing. Mm. Right? And so, I mean, there are powerful, transformative experiences here that they are uh, hinting at, they are leading us to uh, through these kinds of um, uh, these kinds of passages and poems and stories. Um, and, and there is a pull, there's a direct laser beam <laughs> uh, pull into God's own heart and the divine embrace that they are calling us to, provided we're just willing to deal again with what would stand in the way of that love, and that is our nafs, that is our ego. Um, and here we got to be able to distinguish between when do we love somebody because it makes us feel good, and when is it that we actually want that boundary between the self and the other 
to go away when we want this me, me, me quality to go away. And we just want to merge with this cosmic current of love. Beautiful. I love poetically, it's so striking how, uh, how he says, how you translated. I'm afraid of something else. And just yeah. the vagueness, there's no specific thing, but yes. it doesn't even matter what else it is. That's the point. Yeah. I'm afraid of something else. There is, you know, there is nothing else. It just, there is nothing else. And that's so beautiful, that just the vagueness of that. But that, that it doesn't matter. Whatever you fill in the blank, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, um, and, you know, what that really brings for me is that, you know, my experience, there's been experiences that I've had, you know, and people talk about on the path, right? If you, if you have openings or, or, you know, Allah gives you kind of expansions or, or kind of tajalliyat, spiritual experiences, the moment that you start to ration, you go up to your mind and you say, oh my God, I'm having an experience, you lose it. So it's like, just be in the love. And, and when you go back and you're just present, then you can actually, but when you try to like, conceptualize it and place it in a box and you try to, you lose it. And even in mundane things, the first time that I experienced this consciously was when I was playing basketball at a, as a middle schooler. Because that's at that time in my life, that's all I did. And I got pretty good, but there were certain moments where something would change and like the court would shift and my vision would shift. And, you know, they call it like being in a flow state and I couldn't miss. And I, I knew where the past was going to go before it went. And and I would just, I could make shots, you know, over and over again. But the moment that I started to think about it and rationalize it and go, oh my God, I'm in the zone, I'm on fire, I would lose it, you know? Yeah. And so it was this, it, it's this amazing thing where, you know, you know, we, okay, we want to remove duality and we don't want to, but there's a, where we over intellectualize things, we actually take ourselves out of the ability to, to experience that's right. That's right. And I think, you know, one of the, um, <laughs> you know, the, one of my favorite movies is uh, Princess Bride. And there's this wonderful line in it uh, where one of the characters says, I do not think that that word means what you think it means, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think sometimes we get ourselves in trouble, into a deep trouble, when we start reading a lot of Muslim texts, and in particular Sufi texts when they're using the words that we have seen before, but they're not using them in the way that we have seen before. Um, so in a lot of this kind of path of radical love, like you'll see them criticize um, reason and rationality and even intellect, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what they mean by uh, intellect isn't the same thing that the Muslim philosophers mean by intellect. They're talking about this feeble attempt to try to get the eternal and incomprehensible and transcendent God of all the universes and make him fit into our limited finite understanding, mm -hmm. uh, which for them is a method of idol-making. Um, and so, you know, Ibn Arabi says this so beautifully that the qalb, the heart, one of the meanings of the word qalb, of course, is something that changes, something that transforms. Mm -hmm. And it is only the heart that can comprehend God as long as it remains changing. Mm -hmm. 
as long as every understanding of God that you have continues to grow and evolve, and you never step in the same river twice. That's right. Right? And so when, when the Sufis are talking about um, don't think too hard, um, part of what they're talking about is, you know, be in that moment. Um, hush, say nothing. Stay in this fire of divine love and let it work on you. Let it cook you. Um, and kind of, you know, without taking, without getting too um, um, explicit <laughs> kind of about this, one of the reasons that their poetry um, at times gets so sensual mm-hmm. is because there is something about the act of lovemaking, which gives you a little taste of this mystical experience where the boundary between you and another is dissolved at least just for a few minutes, for a few moments. You don't know where your body ends and her body begins. And for the mystics, there is something... um, it's not just sensual, but also spiritual about that particular um, practice of, of union. Because, of course, what they're going for is a, is a sense, that experience of being closer to Allah, feeling like they are one uh, with Allah and that the ego has just gone away. And so the way that they talk about this uh, in this poetic language. And again, they're not writing a book of theology here, right? So, and many of these same mystics, including Rumi, in the daytime, they would be teaching classes on law and theology. They know that language. But at nighttime, they are singing love songs. Um, and so these were the great masters of switching discourses. And they tell us time and time again that one of the greatest sources of confusion is when we insist on reading one body of Islamic literature through the framework of somebody else, right? So, you know, he's got, like Rumi's got this beautiful little poem, and I've thought about this one for for a while, and I think what's so amazing about this is you can read this as um, the experience of a mystical union with Allah, you could also read this as the greatest bit of marriage counseling that there has ever been. And I think it's true on both of those levels and 18 other levels that, you know, we haven't even talked about. So he kind of hears what, what he says, and he just addresses this poem to a faithful friend, faithful friend. And, and, you know, the reason that this works so beautifully and ambiguously is, of course, that word friend, dost in Persian, dos in Turkish, the friend is one of the words that these Sufis had for Allah, Right? They say that there is a love affair with Allah in which God is still the Lord, is still the king, is still the master, and 
he becomes a friend and he becomes a lover and a beloved, right? So when the, and of course in Arabic, Persian, Ottoman, Turkish, Urdu, we didn't have capital letters. So when they call somebody friend, it could be just, you know, your earthly buddy, friend, pal. It could be your lover, beloved. It could be your spiritual teacher. It could be the prophet, or it could also be Allah, right? Um, so here's what he says in the poem. He says, faithful friend, come closer. Right? And that already should recall the description of the mi'raj, um, you know, where the prophet is told to come closer. He says, let go of you and I. Let go of these notions of a you and an I. Come quickly. And then this is the part that I love so much. I um, recently used this in the wedding ceremony of one of my very dear friends. Um, he says, you and I have to live as if you and I never heard of the you and an I. Right. It, it is. And, and, you know, like I've thought about this and I've thought about, um, you know, a lot of the folks that I speak with um, and in a previous existence, I too was one of these people who find themselves in a really difficult relationship, a really difficult marriage. And, you know, where uh, your relationship or your marriage becomes some kind of a hostile accounting firm. And it's, you know, I took out the trash, but it's your turn to do the dishes. And I have done this four times and you've only done it three times, right? And, and there's no joy that comes out of that. Um, the, the work already has to happen at a deeper level, at the heart level to, to fix things. Um, and, and what he's saying here is, um, what if you and I related to each other as if we had never heard of this distinction between a you and an I? What if we were just in it for the we? Um, and, you know, again, whether you take that as just a simple poem um, between friends, between lovers, or even in terms of our relationship um, with God, uh, you know, I think there's there's uh, so much that it has to offer us that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh, actually three poems in here that kind of I, I really like and that you kind of touched on. So I'm going to try to weave them all into that. But yeah. the one is the the, the prayer of Rabi al Adawiyah, where <laughs> you know, so famously, it, it talks about this this accounting, this divine accounting. And you point out that this is also in our human relationships where we pull back. <laughs> you did this, you didn't do this, I did this, right? And so many uh, worldly lovers, you know, um, are like that with their beloved, turn into that in our, in our romantic relationships, but also so many religious people, it turns into that with God, right? And so she says, oh Lord, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in that hell. And if I worship you hoping for paradise, make it forbidden for me. But if I worship you only for your own sake, do not withhold from me your everlasting beauty. So this, this elevating beyond accounting. And there's another, I forget where it was, but it was in here somewhere. And it said something about 
uh, and perhaps you'll remember the exact reference, but it said, uh, if only there were no heaven or no hell, then we'd see who really loves God. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, and I mean, that's a constant um, refrain that we get in, uh, in some parts of, you know, this particular tradition. Um, you know, and uh, one of the joys of having gone through uh, you know, thousands and thousands of these poems and stories and trying to figure out which one of them work in an English context, an English-speaking context, because aesthetics, of course, have, have changed. And, you know, something that may work as a beautiful Persian ghazal yeah. may not necessarily work for a 21st century uh, American English-speaking audience, yeah. right? Um, but some of it, interestingly enough, does. And, um, you know, a lot of people, of course, have heard of, you know, Rumi and Hafez. I always tell people, whatever you've heard of Hafez is fake. It's like hashtag fake Hafez. 99% of all this stuff on the internet has nothing to do with Hafez. Quite literally, it's all fabricated. It's not even like the Rumi stuff where the Islamic context is downplayed. Uh, The Hafez stuff literally this charlatan made it up and published it as a book attributed to, right. to Hoffa. Um, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, but, you know, people have heard of Rumi and Hafez, um, but, you know, we got so many giants in this tradition, in the same radical love tradition. And one of the ones that I love with all of my heart um, is, is not a particularly well-known guy named Kharaqani. Um, and what a, what a giant he, he was. Uh, he seems to have been a very simple person um, who has this extraordinarily tender love affair with God that at points almost becomes humorous, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, you know, there's a wonderful story that Attar tells about Kharagani in which um, God wakes him up from his sleep. Um, and in a rather stern voice, you know, God says to him, um, you know, his name is Abul Hassan. Uh, so he says, Abul Hassan, Abul Hassan, like Hassan's daddy, uh, do you want me, as in God, to go and tell people every hypocrisy that there is in you? Uh, do you want me to tell them every um, lack of righteousness that I know to be in your heart? And Kharagani doesn't miss a beat. He comes right back to God as a friend. And he says, my Lord, uh, do you want me to go and tell people that you love them more than a mother loves her newborn child? Do you want me to tell them that you love them so much that you could never allow a single one of your creation to be cast into hellfire? And if I do, then I think none of them are going to pray or fast. Um, And you almost imagine this banter as this affectionate, playful exchange between these two friends. Only one of them is the Lord of all creation. Um, and then there's a long pause after Kharagani says this to God, and God comes back to him and says, 
I say nothing, you say nothing, <laughs> right? And the I say nothing, you say nothing, which sounds so colloquial in English, is actually literally what the Persian original of this text from more than 800 years ago said. Um, and, and I love that story. I love the tenderness and the playfulness and the humor that there is in it, alongside, of course, the love and the obedience that goes uh, into that same tradition. Beautiful. Yeah, I want to get into, in a second, I'd like to get into discussing translation and, and, and yeah. that because I'm interested in that. But first, there's one topic that, you know, there's this idea of love, but it really gets down to, um, and you have many quotes that are really profound about this, this kind of mystery of the true selfhood of the human being vis-a-vis the divine. And in the most kind of profound, uh, intimate of these, these poems and writings from this tradition, there is a, a like you said, there's almost a, an outward uh, a blasphemy something about that there it's it's true non-duality and and they would say of course it's, it's the true tohid but for people that are focused on the outward it may be it may be uh, troubling and there, there's an amazing uh quote that Olana Rumi has uh where he says you know um Fir'aun and Halaj, they said basically the same thing, <laughs> which is, I am God, essentially. But Fir'aun said it from his individual ego. And, and Halaj said it from the absence of his individual ego. So in reality, they were saying the total opposite thing. And you have two uh, quotes here that kind of touch on that. There's one from Iraqi, which is so short and sweet. God loves himself in you. And I'd yeah. love to hear deeper about that. But then there's this one from Atar where he says, I know nothing, I know rather, without knowing. I don't know if you are I or I you. I've lost two things, myself in you and duality. Myself in you and duality. So I'd love to hear uh, just some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, um, you know, I think in as much as um, I've been able to sit with and, and live with uh, of, of this beautiful tradition, I think one of the things that I see is um, they, they love to um, give you a story, give you a metaphor, and then come at it from different points of view, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, everybody, I think, has probably heard of, you know, that wonderful kind of story of the elephant in the city of the blind man, mm-hmm. right? Which is an old Buddhist Hindu mm-hmm. text that enters Persian and Arabic sources mm-hmm. and shows up in Kalila Wadimna and, and kind of what have you. But, you know, basically saying that uh, in the city of the blind folk, um, the elephant is, is a bigger creation than they are. So each one of them can only feel a certain part of the elephant, right? right? And they do the same thing with language. 
So one of the really beautiful things is when you're reading the Masnavi, for example, um, in that first volume of the Masnavi, uh, Rumi introduces that beautiful uh, hadith uh, that you know so many different folks have loved, al-mu'min mir'atul mu'min. The faithful is the mirror of the faithful. And, and he gives you three or four different stories all as a kind of reflection, commentary on that same saying. But in each one, he's showing you a different face of that same hadith. So the first time around, he's kind of like just uses it in a sense of, well, you know, if you're in a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a spiritual community, um, you get to see qualities in other dervishes, in other beautiful human beings who are part of your community uh, that you may not see in yourself. And you might also see ugly qualities in them, which is actually just a mirror being held up to you, Mm. right? And then he'll come back and he'll tell you a different story in which you know, uh, the, the famous lion and the hare story, lion and the rabbit story, in which, you know, uh, the, the rabbit takes the lion to a well and the well looks down, the, the, the lion looks down into the well and sees his own reflection and he attacks. Mm. Um, and the thing that he's attacking is himself. Um, and then Rumi comes back to the same saying, saying that, you know, so often the thing that we hate in somebody else is actually a reflection of our own quality. So if there's somebody who really pushes your button, before you attack them, pause long enough and to see if they're teaching you something about yourself, mm. right? So the first time around, it's about your spiritual community. The second time around, it could be something about a person that you've identified as the enemy or an obnoxious person. And then the third story that he gives you is also something about al-mu'min, of course, is one of the asma al-husna, is one of the names of Allah. And then he tells you, al-mu'min mar'at al-mu'min, our task on this earth is to be a reflection of divine qualities. So he tells you the same saying but approaches it each time in a different context. And I think that's what the Sufis are doing with something like um, the notion of the self, the nafs or the ego. So on one hand, you've got some of them who say um, very, you know, simply that God is wherever your ego is not. Um, Kharagani, the same beautiful one that um, I talked about before, he's got a wonderful saying that I translated here as old skin. And he says, I shed my ego as a snake discards its old skin. Mm-hmm. And that there is a real self in you and it's got to come out um, and, and that has to come out um, out of this bounded shell um, that, that you've imprisoned yourself in. Um, and then when you do, you know, you sort of get to 
um, a different kind of an understanding. Um, they pick up on the parts of the Quran, God is with you wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, uh, you know, ever since your image came to call my heart home, wherever I sit is heaven. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I think they start to use the same words um, in very different contexts, in very different meanings. So for one of them, the nafs might be something that you have to discard. For another one, the nafs might be something that you've got to get to know really well. And they will tell you, you can't know Allah until and unless you get to know your own nafs well. Uh, and another time they might tell you that you got to cook the nafs. You got to transform the nafs. Um, and so I think in those kinds of contexts, it's very helpful um, to, to see these different Sufi teachings as representing the different parts of the elephant. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and that's why ideally we wouldn't be reading these stories alone. Right. I think ideally we would be reading them in a community or even better um, with somebody who doesn't just know the poems um, they've lived this poetry. Um, their very existence is this beauty. And then they know which story is the medicine for you and me tonight. Sure. And to, tomorrow we might need a different medicine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful. And it brings up a lot um, relating to translation and the, popular, the popularity of Sufi poetry in the Western context, um, things of that nature. You mentioned in, in, I believe, the introduction, or you have a kind of note on translation where you mentioned that there's kind of two extremes um, in translation of Sufi poetry into English. One is represented by Nicholson Arbery, which is this kind of very academic, sometimes dry Victorian English, which has the virtue of usually being quite um, accurate, but is a bit difficult to access. I mean, you don't get the, the, the heart. It doesn't hit you in the heart. It's kind of cerebral. Whereas yeah. there's, there's the other um, extreme where it's translated, and it's usually Coleman Barks and others that are, are taking these poems and actually using Nicholson or Arbery's translation, usually not working directly from the Persian, and they're kind of putting it into a more modern, free verse, almost kind of like beat poet-esque English. But in those, often it's kind of de-Islamicized because they're making choices for, for the, the common lay reader in, in, in the English-speaking world. And also, you know, it tends to be a certain percentage Rumi and a certain percentage the translator, give or take each translator a poem. So whether it's 50-50 or 25-75, you know, but um, I'd love to hear you talk about that and to maybe uh, some of the difficulties, but also just the general phenomena of kind of Rumi being the, the number one selling poet and the great kind of universal uh, star of the meme world and everything like that. Um, yeah, so I'll just leave it with that question. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, I think he, I am um, in, in the uh, interest of full uh, transparency. Um, I am closer to 50 um, than I am to 40. Mm. Um, and if you and I were having this conversation 20 years ago, uh, I think I would have, the way that many 20-year-olds, or at least me, I'll just speak for myself, I won't, uh, I won't pretend uh, to represent all 20-year-olds, at least the way I was in my 20s, um, there was a lot of anger at um, the fame that some of these other folks who are not Muslim and I was suffering through grad school, uh, you know, learning medieval, classical Persian and classical Arabic, and then learning the whole Sufi context from which these folks come from um, and the technical meaning of the words. Like, that's hard work. Mm -hmm. And here I was, like, you know, um, working my tail off. And then, you know, I would see these non-Muslim uh, folks who'd never bother to learn these languages, kind of getting rich off of these sayings, and and it would get to me. So um, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I think I had, and I know I spent a lot of time preparing these, I had a whole long lecture on all the ways that Coleman Barks gets Rumi wrong, that he minimizes um, the Quran and the name of the prophet, and that... Um, you know, I think my favorite example back then was there's that wonderful, beautiful poem that he has of um, there are hundreds of ways to bow down and kiss the ground. Um, and if you let the beauty we love be what we do, there are hundreds of ways to bow down and kiss the ground. And, you know, when you read the original Persian, uh, Rumi is not at all talking about bowing down and kissing the ground. He's talking about sajda and ruku. Mm. Prostrating. And then to ah, yes. prostrating in prayer and, uh, and bowing down in front of the Almighty in the ritual prayer. And then to, for him then to say there's thousands of ways of doing your salat, right, of your daily prayer. Like that's a really powerful and particularly Islamic statement. Yeah. Um, and likewise, you know, for Nicholson, uh, I had a whole long list of critiques about this Orientalist scholar who never set foot in the Muslim-majority world and had no interest in going because he actually thought that meeting Muslims was going to complicate the picture for him. <laughs> right? Um, and that was me in my 20s. I think now that I am... I hope, I hope, um, finishing off the summer season of my life and entering the autumn season of my life, um, I'm a little more content these days to say, um, let everybody do the best that they can and let me spend my own life, whatever I have left of it, not tearing somebody else down but building up whoever's reading something that I might do. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, I look around at 
what's happening in the world today and not just the obvious stuff, not just politics and, you know, Nazis in the White House and what, and what have you, even among those of us who um, call ourselves Muslims and what have you, you know, there's a lot of pettiness. There's a lot of meanness and there's a lot of feeling like, you know, my sheikh could take your sheikh kind of a language. And I don't want to be distracted by that kind of foolishness. So I think what I would say is trying to live a more generous life. Um, yeah, Nicholson, for example, and Arbery said that they were not trying to write something that would be poetry in English. They did their work as a study guide for students of the Persian language, um, doing the best that they could to come up with a literal word-by-word translation. But you know what? Nicholson also lost his eyesight in the process of editing Rumi's poetry. There was no critical edition. He collected all the manuscripts that he could get his hands on. He compiled them. He produced the critical edition. He did the full translation, which to this day is the only complete English translation. Um, and he did a two-volume commentary. MashaAllah! Like, what incredible service he provided to the lovers of Rumi in that way. And, you know, also as far as like the Coleman Bark stuff is concerned. And yes, I do have some criticisms of some of the choices that Coleman makes, but he has introduced Rumi to millions of people around the world. Millions of people, including many Muslims, mm. whose first encounter with Rumi was not by learning Persian but by picking up a Coleman Barks translation. And that's even true for a lot of native Persian speakers, though they will never admit that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, mashallah. And if they read some parts of Rumi's poetry, and if at some point in life, one of these medicines disguised as poetry touched their heart, if it saved one person's life, what a beautiful service he has provided. Um, so I think I just kind of where I am in this autumn season of, of life, I, I just want to do something good and something beautiful and have it come out of my heart and inshallah touch somebody else's heart. Um, and that's enough. That's enough, I think, for me. And, and if, I, if I get to spend some of that time doing that and finding the most beautiful of the teachings and the stories and the poems and not just translate them from one language to another, but really come up with something that sings in the new context, something that... You know, when, when people say uh, the prophets were sent to speak to people in their own language, uh, that doesn't just mean that they came to speak to us in Arabic and Hebrew and Persian and Chinese. It means 
they knew how to reach us. They knew how to talk to us. They knew our stories and our metaphors, and they knew what worked for people. Uh, and I think to be a good translator, you have to know that. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the things I love about you, my dear brother, is you do this. Uh, you do this in the beautiful work that you do, um, going deep into um, Islamic jewels and gems and Sufi aesthetics, and then putting it into spoken word and hip-hop, which is today's global language, among many uh, other ones. So I think that is translation. That is real work of reaching people where they are and where their hearts are. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I really appreciate you sharing your kind of process and your journey as you reflected on that. And um, there were so many things you said in there, which were actually really profound and just indicate, I think, that you've really sat with that and really reflected deeply. And I mean, I was particularly brought to tears by your, what you shared about Nicholson, you know, literally losing his eyesight, yeah. dedicating himself to this. That was a fact I didn't know. And I, I thought of myself being a few Ramadans ago in Konya, poring over Nicholson's translations at night during yes. Ramadan all night long. And, and you know, it just really moved me that, and, and the, the other thing that you mentioned about Coleman Barks, on the other hand, is, is, is true for me, too. My first, you know, I first came in contact with Islam more through uh, hip-hop and black Muslims that I was around growing up in, you know, urban America in the 90s. But at the same time, I, I around the same time, I came in contract, uh, contact with Rumi uh, through Coleman Barks and through those popular translations. And so for me, it was that what really like sealed the deal for me with about Islam is that it produced people like not only Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, but people like Rumi. And so it had yeah. deep, you know, strive for justice in the world, but it came out of this deep, profound spirituality. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I actually have a deep, deep love and respect and gratitude for Coleman Barks. And I pray that anything good that I do is, is on his, his, uh, his reward. Just with, same with uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and others, Rakim and Chuck D and all of them. But, but the thing is, is that, you know, exactly what you say is that, you know, and, and an interesting parallel is, you know, people could complain, for instance, Hindus could complain that yoga is now on every corner and it's just exercise and what is this? But how many people go to yoga just because they want a tone physique? And then right. maybe something changes in them or it gives them a, a sense of tranquility or they see a picture of a guru on the wall. They pick up a deeper book about the spirituality or the philosophy and it actually is a doorway into a deeper respect and understanding of that tradition. And, and likewise with Rumi, I mean, how many thousands of people have started out and just enjoyed it because it was wine and, and, and beloveds and all that. But then they, they said there's something deeper here and they took it deeper. And I, I, I do see that among some Muslims, they, they complain about this. And sometimes I, I feel like some people really want Rumi to be uh, um, like them. We're just, mad and and 
separating between people and who's a kafir and who's not. And you know what I mean? There it can be right. so right. Rui Rumi was the faqih of the Hanafi madhab and he you know, yes. okay, he was, yes. And and but there's a balance. He was also extremely critical of those who were veiled from the inward reality and critical of his own self for the ways that he had been before his spiritual transformation. And so it's it's both, you know, and, and it, it, you have to affirm both of those realities. And Rumi has a message uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a loving critique of either side, you know, people that would say he's just this universal mystic and take out Islam and those that will try to pull him down to their level where, you know, he, he's just focused on, you know, praying and fasting just like me. And, you know, he's veiled from the the actual opening to the spiritual realm. And so I, I do I do feel that, you know, and also I think you kind of alluded to this that and, and that's why I think you doing this work and, and we pray that the work we're doing as well with our, with our art is we have no one to blame but ourselves if we're Muslims, mm-hmm. you know, because if someone reads a beautiful popular translation of Rumi or even academic translation of Rumi and they're moved by it and they say, I want to experience this and they go to their local mosque. Are they going to find that deep love and that brotherhood and that focus on experiencing the divine beloved yourself and complete non-judgment, not worrying what anyone thinks, but really just being with your creator and being with the fellow uh, travelers on the path in complete brotherhood, sisterhood, and love? Or are they going to find other than that? And so if we aren't the people that are creating those spaces, then, then, then can we really critique, you know, or blame others that, that, that you know, are doing the work? So I, I, I totally um, respect what you say. And I think you, I also come, you know, have gotten to that point where I, I, I'm actually deeply grateful to these people that came before. And now it's the time for us to continue on the work if we feel called to that. Inshallah. And may it, may it come from the heart. May it uh, reach people's hearts. And, and you know, may we also uh, be willing to do the work and then um, be willing to step back and let somebody else come and add their own spin to it, uh, to put their own flavor on it. That, you know, um, I, I, like I said, all of us, we want to do something that's beautiful and is efficacious, um, but we don't get to have the last word uh, on, on any of these. And, and I think, you know, one of the temptations that's out there, and I've certainly felt this temptation uh, in my own heart, is um, we want to own these giants. We want to own Rumi and we want to own Hafez instead of kind of realizing that they were owned by Allah. Uh, They had gone on their own journey of love uh, into God's own embrace. And the best thing that we can do is not to try to monopolize and to put a trademark after Rumi's name. Uh, it's, It's to swim into that same current of love and to end up uh, somewhere close to where they did. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the most loving and luminous thing that any of us can do. That's great. Well, um, there's a lot to reflect on and thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, I want to let you, 
uh, let people know where they can find the book as well as where they can connect with you if you have a website or on social media or find any of your other works. So uh, feel free to just give a shout out so listeners can <laughs> Well, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I will give you that, but I will tell you something maybe even um, hopefully more beautiful, um, which is when, when, uh, when Rumi was getting very close to passing away, um, one of his disciples asked him, uh, where am I going to find you after you're gone? Where am I going to find somebody like you after you're gone? Uh, and, and I think what, what he told them is something that I hope uh, all of us can stay mindful of, and I wish there was a word heartful of, um, is he said, um, sit with these teachings, sit with these poems, sit with these stories, and examine your heart. And if there's ever a joy that comes to you uh, when you sit with them, open up that joy. Uh, and that's where I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always loved that because I think at the end of the day, um, you know, what matters is not if somebody follows you on Twitter and on Facebook because, you know, none of that stuff is coming into the grave with me. Um, I think what matters is, you know, does it help uh, somebody discover that divine joy inside their own heart, does it help bring them just a little tiny bit closer to Allah? And if they have, uh, then Alhamdulillah, then I think th that, um, that work had barakah. Um, and that's at the end of the day, I think, what, um, what we all kind of want. Um, but I will also answer <laughs> your question since you ask, and because there's an adab to also answering people's questions. Um, so, yeah, the book is called Radical Love, uh, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition. Um, they can find it on Amazon. They can find it from the local bookstore. Um, I am on Facebook and Twitter and all those kind of things. And probably one of the most joyful things that um, I love to invite people to do, if they're ever inclined and interested, is um, there's a program I run that's called Illuminated Tours. And it's got a website, illuminatedtours.com. And we just take people and go for 10 days. Um, so far, it's either to Turkey or Morocco. Uh, someday, inshallah, it might also be India. May it someday also be Iran. Uh, but right now, it's in Turkey and uh, Morocco. And it's basically 10 days of... Uh, being in very beautiful and sacred places and talking about these teachings of the radical love path. We oftentimes read uh, Rumi or other great masters of, um, of the path of love. And we also try to connect with the local indigenous tradition uh, so that when we're in Turkey, we get a real flavor of what the Turkish path of love has been. And then when we're in Morocco, we try to connect with the Moroccan tradition that is there. Um, and that, alhamdulillah, has been something I've been blessed to do for about 15 years. And um, it's one of the more um, joyful things that I get to do. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Not about it. I mean, yeah.